Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we are going to talk about core set previews and our top 10 list specifically. It was a very short preview season. Lightning fast. Honestly, I, I, I think you had the exact same experience where I was just like doing my daily check-in on what cards have been previewed. And then I just looked at the number at the top, like, oh, how many do we have left? And I'm like, oh, actually, this is the entire spoiler. It just came out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, Corset 2020 was here. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, we did just go through a very lengthy Modern Horizons preview season. And the set's coming out pretty quickly. And honestly, the set looks good. I'm I'm very excited for it. But it's not like, I, I don't think that they could have really done like a full month of previews with this set. I see what you're saying, especially, I mean, look, there was fatigue going into this set. It wasn't the level of excitement you would expect. I mean, even to the point of us asking our listeners what they wanted us to talk about, and they don't want to talk about Corset 2020 yet. And quite frankly, I was right there with them. I was glad we talked modern last week. I think that was a far more interesting show and closer to exactly what's going on in the minds of most Magic players, but certainly excited now to get our shot at Corset 2020. Yeah, and it's kind of awkward because there's uh, Grand Prix in Dallas this weekend, and there's SCG Pittsburgh, which is Team Modern. So two pretty big modern events going on in the state. So maybe our planning is a little off here, but I, I think we should talk about modern just a little bit. And sure. the extent of that, I think, is it's it's all Bridgevine stuff, right? It's like, are you going to play this deck? If not what is the thing that you're going to use to try and beat it? Because I think that those are the two most important things right now. Yeah, we've been banging this drum for a few weeks now, and I I don't think there's any denying this is a messed up format. There's something wrong with it. That's fine. There's good stuff going on kind of behind the main focus, and there's a bunch of decks ready to show up. And we talked about this a lot last week where like, I'm glad they took these shots in Modern Horizons. I think the set is super interesting. I think there's a lot of new decks getting ready to come to the forefront, but this problem has to be addressed first. And these are going to kind of, I think be the kind of lost tournaments, if you will. Like this is the only time we're going to see this particular modern format played because I do believe there is a ban coming and maybe I'll be surprised. I've certainly been wrong about this stuff before, but I don't think the Bridgevine decks make it through intact. My pick for a ban would be Bridge from Below. Card is incapable of doing anything good or fair, and the play patterns are very, very odd, and it just generally doesn't have to be here. And then you still preserve the new modern cards, and maybe there's still something interesting you can do with Hogak. Maybe even this deck is viable in some state and becomes interesting. But as it stands right now, it's kind of bridge viner bust. And I do think there's other reasonable choices you can make, but they're only reasonable as far as how hard they are targeting bridge vine and what you expect your opponents to be doing. Yeah. I, I think that bridge from below is specifically a card that is legal. That is never going to do anything good for the format and mm-hmm. could potentially enter the watch list as far as like cards that will probably be banned eventually, but faithless looting is still on that list. And Maybe this is enough reason for them to finally ban Faithless Looting. I'm not sure, but we'll see. Well, that would be a, a, a wild shakeup. Like we'd be dealing with essentially a format rebuilt for from the ground up at that point. And I don't think that's what people want here. I think they just want this deck to come back in line with everything else. 
but maybe I'm wrong. And uh, I would be happily surprised if it is a dramatic shakeup like that, because building decks in modern is a lot of fun. And what we've got to do with the onset of modern horizons has been a lot of fun, even if there is this one miss contained in the set. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So that's it. I think for modern It's just like, what are you going to do? Right. I, so far building my decks, I've tried to have like seven graveyard hate cards in my 75 and that's about it. That's what I've been doing. Yeah. I think that's a bare minimum. Uh, as far as strategies that I think are kind of rising up right now and look real interesting, I'm starting to see a lot of Monastery Mentor builds around, and I'm really excited about that card, uh, leaning on Force of Negation. Some people are now bringing Mishra's Bauble into the mix, and these decks are getting about time. pretty interesting looking. Yeah, it, it does feel like it's about time. I ordered my foil Monastery Mentors. I don't want to be caught without them. They were more than I expected them to be, I will say that. But I think it's time for Monastery Mentor to get some exploration. And maybe that's the card that really breaks out once all this Hogak nonsense is behind us. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Unearth is one of the cards that's very exciting out of Modern Horizons that is seeing some amount of exploration, but definitely not to the degree that you would expect from something so powerful. Yeah, and Monastery Mentor might be like, as far as raw power goes, that might be as good as it gets with Unearth. There's probably nothing better you can do that just ends the game in a flash yeah exactly so is that it for modern that's about all i have to say i i'll be covering the team tournament in pittsburgh this weekend uh, alongside craig kremples and we'll get a look firsthand i I have a feeling it's going to be an interesting event regardless i think we'll do a very good job curating our matchups as nick miller always does we certainly are aware that no one wants to sit and watch Hogak matches for an entire day. At some point, it may become an impossibility to avoid that. But I think the nature of the team format and the fact that we kind of get to cherry pick what we're going to put in the feature match area means you'll be able to tune in and watch really interesting modern all day long. Yeah, and I'm down with that. I am currently in Europe getting ready for like this Red Bull event in Florence and Mythic Championship in Barcelona at the end of July. So... I'm, I'm free this weekend, I'm pretty sure. So I'm just going to be watching you do your thing. It's going to be great. Awesome. It'll be cool to get a little feedback from you too. I think obviously it's difficult to do when we're working as a team, but uh, I look forward to hearing what you have to say about the broadcast in general. Well, you should get rid of that Craig Krimples guy and bring in someone like me. We did that already, Gerald, and it did not work <laughs> out. So well, <laughs> we're going to stick with Craig for the time being. You made a great decision, let me tell you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Corset 2020 top tens. You ready? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so I have a list of reprints that I think are very heavily impactful. And then I also have some honorable mentions because I think the power level is relatively flat. So it was, yeah, it was kind of tough. It's like, they're all tied for 12th. I don't know. That's basically how it it works in my mind. Yeah, there there were a lot of very, very good cards. I don't want to to sound like I'm not excited about this set. There's a lot of interesting build arounds. There's cards that are there on raw power level, but like they're all tight and it was very hard distinguishing my one through 10. And then even beyond that, the honorable mention cards, I think are quite good. I I'm convinced these cards will see some play and it was hard to decide exactly what was going to be on my list and what wasn't for sure. Yeah. So very notable reprints in my mind are God's willing disfigure Maybe Dungeon Geists out of the mono blue sideboard and maybe some Simic decks. Sure. Leyline of Sanctity, Fairy Miscreant, again for mono blue. Potentially Pulse of Marasa. And a big one, I think, is Planar Cleansing. 
Uh, yeah, those are all on my list as well. I don't know if you mentioned Graph Digger's Cage. Did you say Graph Digger's Cage? Well, is that relevant for standard? I think so. I mean, there are there's the Command the Dreadhorde deck, and that's a real deck, and Graph Digger's Cage is a card against that. Now, granted, I think one of the things that's being missed is that deck transitions away from Dreadhorde plans extremely well, really without hesitation. But there are other graveyard things going on in this set. I wrote my entire article which will go up tomorrow, and so probably you'll have read it by the time you hear this podcast, about Tashar combo, because Tashar got a good pickup in this set, and it's very graveyard-reliant, but I could see at some point just having good, consistent graveyard hate really being a big deal for Standard as well. I like the fact that it exists. I just don't think that it's particularly great, and the fact that it does exist means that it is just going to be worse, right? If people are playing a bunch of Graph Digger's Cages and Leyline of the Voids, then... Yeah, the Command the Dreadhorde decks absolutely have to move away from the graveyard, at least in post-board games, which, like mm-hmm. you said, I, th- I think that they're already trying to do, mostly because, you know, people would side in, like, Duress and Dovin's Veto and just get your Command the Dreadhordes outright. Yep. Yeah, I, I do like the fact that they exist, and I'm I'm sure that I will register Leyline of the Void at some point, but Graph Figures Cage, I'm less high on, mostly just because it doesn't stop the Planeswalkers from coming back. Sure, that makes sense. One other card I think you may have missed, Goblin Ringleader. No excitement for Goblin Ringleader? I mean, this was a legacy playable card for a long time. It was legacy playable because you had Port, Wasteland, and Aethervile. Sure, there there is a lot of cheating on mana both for and against you in the Goblins deck, and that's obviously what is very much built around. As we saw occasionally, just another random tribe would pop up doing the exact same things. It, it was more the core of Aethervile, Wasteland, Rashad import getting things done. Right. Uh, people are excited about the card though. And again, it's one that just relies on prints around it. So if an incredible, incredible amount of goblins shows up, it could be the goblin ringleader becomes relevant at some point. Maybe. As for honorable mentions, uh, I have five of them. How many do you have? Well, if, if I'm going to hit you with everything that was on my list, there would be like nine, but uh, Some of these I'm definitely lower on than others. I'll say that. Maybe I'll grab my three best while you read yours. Okay, so Drawn from Dreams. And I'm going to read all of these very quickly just because this is the first time we're talking about M20 stuff. This is 2UU Sorcery. Look at the top seven cards of your library. Put two of them into your hand. The rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Four mana Sorcery Dig Through Time is completely reasonable and is a card that I could see these mid-range decks turning to. But also, in post-board games, you often see decks like this bring in some sort of card-drawing effect. And I think that this one is very powerful for that role. Okay. You don't like this card? I'd like this card more than you do, actually, and I'll have more to say about it in the future. All right. Uh, Other one, Nightpack Ambusher, 2GG. 4-4, 4-4, four, four, Creature Wolf, Flash, Other Wolves and Werewolves you control get plus one, plus one at the beginning of your end step. If you didn't cast a spell this turn, create a 2-2 two, two Green Wolf Creature. So we've seen some banned Flash decks, some Teamer Flash decks, but also just a 4-mana four 4-4 four, four Flash is completely reasonable. It has a bunch of other abilities, but I'm not necessarily looking to make a Wolf or Werewolf deck, but uh, this is an interesting card that could see some play. Big Flash Green Creatures have some pedigree. It matters a lot where it's like the classic beatdown versus control matchup, just a way to kind of throw a monkey wrench into things and have some flexibility in your timings. So I think this is a good card as well. 
also did not make my top 10. It would be on my honorable mention list for sure. Okay. Next up, Rotting Regisaur, Regisaur, 2B76, Creature Zombie Dinosaur at the beginning of your upkeep, discard a card. This is kind of the perfect card for a deck that has just fallen short multiple times, which is the Golgari Molder Hulk deck. And those decks have wanted more ways to put creatures in the graveyard and just having discard outlets in general. And this is like a big, beefy animal. So I would not be surprised if this card sees play even outside of decks that are utilizing the graveyard. Like if you're playing against a mono red aggro deck, for example, like this is a a good way to get them in post-board games. Two big roles for this card to fulfill, I think. The first being a discard outlet, as you mentioned. The second just being a change of pace out of sideboards. If a control deck boards in four copies of these and like you don't have removal in your deck anymore, the game's over in three turns. That's kind of unbelievable efficiency from a slot. Um, I, I don't know if that's going to prove to be an actual thing, but in the past, it's been a successful strategy. I don't think this is just like a great card on its face. I think the drawback matters much more than people believe it does. It's got chump blocking issues in that it can just be perpetually stopped by like a token. So I don't think this is a home run, but it's an interesting card. And like you, I would have it on my honorable mention list. Next up, Blood for Bones, 3B Sorcery as an additional cost to cast a spell, sack a creature, return a creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield, then return another creature card from your graveyard to your hand. And I wouldn't have even really thought about this card, but I think Trudon is his name, F2K Trudon, posted a rough list on Twitter, and I retweeted it, and... There are a couple of cards in this set that's like seven mana creature ETB double Scrivener and like seven mana three, three ETB gain control of a thing where you can do like some crazy stuff with this. And it, it's definitely a build around that I'm interested in. Like this card more than you do. And that's all I'll say for now. Ooh, yeah. Frank Moon is his real name. And I know that Frank was not really catching slack or whatever, but like it was it was kind of like this meme that he looked sort of like Todd Anderson back in the day. Okay. A Todd doppelganger. Very interesting. Two Todds. And then last one. And this is, (laughs) this is going to come with a caveat. I think Uh, my last one is Cavalier of Dawn. And there are these cycles, this cycle of Cavaliers that are mythic rares in this set that are Titan lights. You know, you get like maybe a card, card and a half of value on your five mana beater. And none of them made my top 10 because they all seem to really have this Teferi problem, whereas Cavalier of Dawn, I think, is maybe the best of the bunch. It is two dub-dub-dub, so five mana total, two and three white, four-six creature, elemental knight, vigilance. When this enters the battlefield, destroy up to one target non-land permanent. Its controller creates a 3-3 colorless golem artifact creature token, When this dies, return target artifact or enchantment card from your graveyard to your hand. I don't think you're going to be getting a lot out of the dies trigger as much as I would love to return a treasure map to my hand. I don't think your treasure map is going to die, but uh, this is one of the things where you can, you know, cast it, kill a planeswalker. They get a three, three. That's not all that relevant. But yeah, the, the other Cavaliers don't really do it for me. Disagree pretty strongly, but. We'll get to that later as well. I I will say I like Cavalier of Dawn quite a bit as far as the Cavalier cycle goes. It's not in my top 10. I I found weird uses for it. Like I I have a copy of it in a beatdown-ish version of my Tashar deck. And one of the artifacts or enchantments you can return with it 
is history of Benalia, which will end up in the graveyard. So that was an interesting little synergy I found. All right. I'm I'm back on it. You like it a little better now? Yeah, you're into it? Yep. yep. Yeah, that's a good pickup. Also, obviously, is a knight to benefit from history of Benalia triggers. So there's that going on. I don't think it's a slam dunk, but I, I found some neat synergies with it. And you're right that it does the best job of dealing with the Teferi problem. Yeah, the other ones kind of struggle a bit, but you still get a little bit of value out of it. I don't know how exactly that's going to play out, but we'll see. We will see. Your honorable mentions. Let's go. Uh, A lot of overlap there. The one that was really close to making my list, but like it felt a little too small ball to actually make it. And I wanted to mention somewhere was Cerulean Drake. This is a one colorless, one blue, one, one flying creature. It has protection from red. And you can sacrifice it to counter a spell, which targets you. Protection from red is a incredible, incredible ability. And this seems like small ball against those red decks, but you play it. They can never attack with an X1 again. It's not leaving the battlefield. It blocks the huge creatures as well. It's going to save you a tremendous amount of life over the course of the game. And then you can cash it in to counter that lethal, you know, lightning strike or whatever. Again, it's small ball, but it's an important option for blue decks to have access to. I don't know if it's like one for the mono blue aggro deck or if it's like even a sideboard card for control decks where it's just the best possible thing to buy you a bunch of time. It could prove to be the case. So I like this card a lot and I think it's a little unassuming and I wanted to call attention to it. Well, that card's in my top 10. Oh, nice. Okay. So you're high on it as well. Yeah. I mean, it's just prison term for red decks. Like every turn you're going to be blocking their biggest thing. And like you mentioned, if they're attacking with like a chain whirler and a Viachino Pyromancer or whatever, it's like you just block the Pyromancer, get a little card advantage that way. And it helps you protect your planeswalkers. It, it's just a removal spell. It, you know, prevents a burn spell in the late game. Like this card's insane. Been a minute since we had actual protection around in standard. Yeah. And I think people may have forgotten just how impactful it can be. I got two more cards I want to talk about real quick. Steaming Symmetry. I I don't know what to do with this card yet. Again, all these cards showed up in my Tashar builds because I think it's interesting there where you have your Diligent Excavator and can just take it away from your opponent. There's obviously Teferi Synergies where you get the card before your opponent does. Those things are pretty interesting. This is an effect that's very powerful, but you do have to get away from that Symmetry problem in some fashion, I think. I don't think you just give your opponent the perfect card in all situations, but maybe there's decks that like your average card value is so much higher than your opponent's average card value that you can just get away with that kind of game plan. It's interesting to see what feels like a very pure combo card making its way back to standard. And it doesn't really feel like a core set card either. Like it's it's weird, it's flashy and cool. I like this card a lot. Looking forward to seeing what I can do with that. I'm going to have to write an article about Mulligan Tutors, aren't I? Uh, you may. I, I'm assuming you hate them, and that makes sense. Obviously, down a card is problematic. I get it. But if the card wins you the game, like you can make it work for you. Yeah, I mean, y- you have to be getting something that's super powerful, either just like an outright combo or a uh, silver bullet to some degree. But I don't think that that's really how standard functions. In Tashar, I think it's very interesting because you are trying to set up you know, your three-piece combo or whatever, post-board, you're probably going to have to side it out because they can just play like one Graft Digger's Cage against you, right? And like you said, you had the diligent thing to to potentially mill them or whatever, but it's still very awkward. Yeah, it, it's harder to set up in post-board games for sure. So I could see the numbers going down in that spot. 
but yeah, I just thought it was an interesting card. One that I don't see an immediate like tier one home for, but the power level, it, it, it's doing different things than we usually see in standard. And it could be key for right. a really revolutionary deck, you know, a pure combo deck where we haven't seen in a long time. Final card. Don't think this one is good, but it's weird enough that I wanted to mention it. It's bag of holding. And let me go ahead and <laughs> read this one. I will scroll down. I'm surprised this isn't on your It's list. in the bag. Yeah, it is in the bag. Bag of Holding is one colorless artifact. Whenever you discard a card, exile that card from your graveyard. Two, tap, draw a card, then discard a card. Four, tap, sacrifice Bag of Holding. Return all cards exiled with Bag of Holding to their owner's hand. So I think that as a just pure value engine, it kind of fails. Two mana to activate is a lot. And this reminds me of like Druidic Satchel in some ways, where if you were able to play these kind of games, you were able to garner advantage from it, but it was very difficult to play those kind of games. But this might be the type of tool that non-traditional control decks are looking for. Things like Big Red might rely on Bag of Holding to just filter their draws, get exactly the card they need. And then in the late game, you cash it in for six or seven cards and all of a sudden you're unbeatable. Obviously, these are cards you didn't want in the moment, but that makes sense in the context of Big Red where you know your cards scale throughout the game. You have X spells, you have large creatures, things like that. So, and also I want to mention that you don't only have to get cards into your bag of holding by discarding them with the ability, all discards are going to go there. I don't know how hard you want to lean into that, but it's worth noting. Again, I don't think this is quite there as far as standard goes yet, but it opens up some options to decks that otherwise wouldn't have them. Also, traditionally those decks use treasure map, which I know you love. You're going to lose treasure map soon though, Gerald. And I think you need to start looking into other options for a post treasure map world. Yeah, but not yet. I was going to say clapping emoji, treasure, clapping emoji, map, clapping emoji. I I get it. Very, very fair point. It it is a combo with the rotting Registor, though. Sure, I guess so, if if that's what we're into. That that dino needs to carry around his bag of holding. Nice. He's strapped up. Yeah. All right. Actual top 10 time. Let's do the actual top 10. All right. My number 10 spectral sailor u11 creature spirit pirate flash flying 3u draw card so much text love this card absolutely very very cool stuff didn't make my top 10 feel kind of bad about it because this was the one i saw where like this was the card that elicited an actual excited reaction from me because this is everything i want to do in magic yeah this is cool yeah, I mean, this is just the perfect card for Mono Blue. Like, you get a backup engine after Curious Obsession. It's a one mana, one one flyer. Now we're just flooded with those, which is awesome. It has Flash 2, uh, which is a little extra bonus. You no longer have to decide, like, oh, do I want to keep open, like, Wizard's Retort and Siren Storm Tamer, or do I want to deploy, like, this Miscloak Herald or whatever? It's like, Flash just makes everything so easy. It really does. And one of the things I like to talk about when card pools get very large is the concept of redundancy and it's just like how many of the exact same thing do i have around and in the past this often manifested with mana creatures and you'd find a format that had like 12 one mana elves and all of a sudden you're able to make weirdo elf ball style decks well here we're starting to get a lot of redundancy with just one you blue flyer and there's like favorable wins and there's this new card drawing spell, which gets cheaper if you control a flyer and there, there's the angel too, which is kind of interesting, right? The angel that if you tap four creatures and pay a white, 
you just get a seven, seven flyer and it makes all your other flyers indestructible. So yeah, there, there's a lot of redundancy as far as this style of creature goes. And a lot of them come with some card advantage strapped on fairy miscreant can draw a card as you have additional copies of it. You have this now. So whereas this style of deck sounds super mopey and just like all in. And then as soon as your opponent plays a blocker, you have nothing left to do. Well, now you've got card advantage engines going. And maybe that'll be enough to have flyers be an actual archetype in this format. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I still like pairing them with counter spells as long as you have a way to ensure that your opponent does not resolve to Fairy Time Raveler in the early game. Mm-hmm. Sure. So th- I think this set gives Mono Blue enough upgrades in a couple different places, or I guess like the last two sets, really, because now you have a lot of ways to actually deal with like rekindling Phoenix and things like that that were a huge issue. Like you have Casamina's Transmutation or Cerulean right. Drake even. That deck doesn't have a whole lot of problems anymore, and Cerulean Drake helps a lot against Mono Red, and I would imagine with like Leyline and things like the Color Hosers, Mono Red will also just dip a lot. So, could be time for a resurgence. Yeah, a lot of good pickups in this set for sure. Also, Unsummon too, which I, we didn't have Unsummon already, right? I feel like we always had Unsummon. I, I actually don't think we did, but maybe I'm wrong about that. We'll double check on that. But a pickup nonetheless, if we didn't. Ready for my number 10? Yeah, let's do it. My number 10 is Icon of Ancestry. This is three colorless artifact as Icon of An- Ancestry enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Creatures you control of the chosen type get plus one, plus one. Three tap, look at the top three cards of your library. You may reveal a creature card of the chosen type from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Three mana Glorious Anthem for a tribal deck. Totally fine. Willing to pay that in a lot of spots. We had like Radiant Destiny. Glorious Anthem is a card that we've seen for a long time. Here, obviously, there's the constraint of having to have a specific tribal strategy, but you get the upside of getting some card advantage tacked on to a card like this. And again, tribal decks can historically struggle with that. They do their thing. They flood the board. Opponent answers, and now they're struggling to regain footing. Icon of Ancestry both speeds up your initial clock and gives you some grinding in the late game. Uh, this is quite a good Glorious Anthem effect, I think. Dude, only number 10? Only number 10. I have a feeling you're going to have more to say about this card in the future. This this card is busted. It's real good. I agree with you. A lot of real good cards in the set. And as I said, I, I think my power level from 1 to 10 is so flat that if I moved all of these around in like a random fashion, I probably wouldn't be all that upset with it. All right, fine. I'll excuse it, but uh, this card's going to show up in a lot of spots. It, it's just everything that you would want for a tribal creature deck. Like, you yeah. you get two different payoffs on one card that is just very reasonably costed. Yeah, pretty wild. All right, my number nine is Flame Sweep. 2R, instant. This deals two damage to each creature except for creatures you control with flying. We played Fiery Cannonade for so mm-hmm. long... And there was always that one thing that your opponent had, and it it just made it so bad. Now we actually have uh, our Pyroclasm back. I'm very happy about this. This is great. This card will see uh, some amount of play. I'm not sure exactly how much, but uh, regardless, I'm very happy that it exists. This is a significant upgrade, especially as the card pool gets broader, the mana curves tend to shrink a little bit, and you get more pieces for these, like, small creature decks which i think this set kind of just like gives you in spades so uh this type of card becomes even more important yeah instant speed deal two damage 
big, big deal. And you're right. Fiery Candidate always found a way to disappoint me. Not on my top 10 list. Fine inclusion, though. Maybe not the sexiest of cards, but a very important one for sure. And of course, we are going to lose Fiery Candidate at some point. So nice to have this effect. Stick around. Yes. My number nine. Shifting Ceratops. Two green, two colorless. This spell can't be countered. Protection from blue. Green Shifting Ceratops gains your choice of reach, trample, or haste until end of turn. And it's a 5-4. Like you said, big attacks. Stupid, dumb creature, but huge. Protection from blue. It's all about the Teferi test. This passes with flying colors. This will not be bounced by small Teferi. It will not be talked by large Teferi. It has haste, so it's pressuring all the other Planeswalkers at a time when Planeswalkers are critically, critically important. Shifting Ceratops leaves a defender without many good options. It even tramples over small creatures. So I think this is a instance of a bunch of abilities just coming onto a card to be exactly what the format demands presently. Now, obviously, that'll change over time. Who knows where this format is going? But as it stands right now, Shifting Ceratops is a card that like the Gruul decks would have happily picked up. Yeah, it is weird to me because this card seems completely reasonable on its own. Normally, these color hoser cards are supposed to live in your sideboard and like maybe see main deck play if things are leaning a certain way. But right. this card might just be evergreen potentially because there's always going to be some amount of Teferis in the format no matter what. And sure. Yeah. Uh, a four mana five, four is fine. Pro blue is a nice little bonus. It's a dinosaur. Maybe there's something you can do with that. And then you, you get like this suite of morphling abilities, uh, <laughs> which is, Kind of absurd. So I like this card a lot. Yeah, Morphling Dinosaur. Weird ad, but uh, I believe this is an important one. Uh, my number eight, Big Chandra. Four R. My number eight as well. Jerry, we nailed hey. it. This is obviously the eighth best card in the set. Clearly. Four RR, six starting loyalty. Spell can't be countered. Plus two, each opponent gets an emblem where they continue to burn at the beginning of your upkeep. This emblem deals one damage to you. Minus three, this deals three damage to each non-elemental creature. And minus X, this deals X damage to target creature or planeswalker. If a permanent dealt damage this way would die this turn, exile instead. So six mana can't be countered. Great. Continues to stack up little burny things for your opponent. So kills them. Has a sweeper attached to it and has a mode that kills a big creature. This is basically a perfect six mana planeswalker. Oh, don't forget about the mode that kills big planeswalker as well. So right. fine response to a Teferi entering the battlefield. I, I think this just does a lot for any like mid-range-ish red deck. It makes big red viable maybe on its own. Sweepers attached to planeswalkers, if you haven't had the joy of playing with them before, they're a big deal. You deal with your opponent's battlefield and have this incredible persistent threat. And in Chandra's case, it's persistent even after Chandra leaves the battlefield. And all of this comes with a spell that can't be countered. So I think that it seemed like people were a little hyped on rare Chandra as opposed to mythic Chandra. I think rares, or excuse me, I think mythic is quite a bit better. It fits a little bit better with the metagame as it's currently being played. And I'm in for this card. I, I love sweepers tied onto planeswalkers. I agree that big Chandra answers more relevant problems. I think small Chandra might be a weaker card in general, but being a three mana planeswalker that's reasonable, she's going to show up in a lot of different places. So I, I think that she's going to see more play, but I'm definitely way more excited about six mana Chandra. Let me ask this question, and it's something I haven't really unpacked yet, so I don't blame you if you don't have an answer. 
Does the fact that there's so many three mana planeswalkers now kind of devalue the fact that Chandra is a three mana planeswalker? Or is it just evergreen that's always impactful? I don't know. I mean, like if every deck is building around the eventuality that your opponent is going to have a three mana planeswalker, then at some point that becomes worse, right? Oh, uh, I mean, assuming that you actually have the tools to make that sort of thing worse and sure that it's even I, possible. I, right. And I, I like Chandra specifically because she does the rabble master thing where she actually gets to come down and, you know, attack things like the fairy and Narset. Take out uh, a planeswalker. Yeah. Potentially. So uh, that's, Basically, why I like her, I mean, the the things that you can do are play haste creatures or things that leave around a little bit of value, even in the face of Teferi Time Raveler. So Legion War Boss and, you know, I guess Chandra, if she gets dealt with, doesn't necessarily leave anything behind. But uh, the two damage that you get in might be very relevant. So mm-hmm. I, I think that she is good against the other three mana planeswalkers, so kind of gets like an additional pass. But yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of aggressive two mana creatures in this set too, so we could see things dramatically shifting. Yeah, that's true. All right, so I guess we're back to my number seven. Let's do it. Ooh, this I, I love this card so much. Can you guess what card this is? Uh, a card that you love. Nothing uh, Nothing really like stood out to me as this is a Jerry Thompson card. You're going to have to hit me with it. I don't know exactly what it is. Risen Reef. Uh, hold on. I'm looking to find Risen Reef because it's it's not anywhere on any of my lists. What? Oh, wait. Right, this is, is, is this, this is the draw card one? Yeah, this is 1GU, 1-1 Elemental. Whenever this or another Elemental enters the battlefield under your control, look at the top card of your library. If it's a land... You may put it onto the battlefield tapped. If you don't put the card onto the battlefield, put it into your hand. So I actually want Risen Reef and Omnath to kind of occupy the same slot. But regardless, I am very excited for Elementals. I'm not sure if they're there. I don't really care. (laughs) I like what this tribe is doing. I'm a big fan. So new Coiling Oracle essentially is what we're dealing with with Risen Reef. But it's Um, any Elemental. Right. I have looked at it's this card. It's an engine. I just didn't know its name. It's an interesting card. Have you done the gatherer search for existing elementals in standard? I saw that people were building elemental decks and there are a lot of elementals in the set. I haven't actually gone down this rabbit hole. I have a, a list of decks that I want to build with M20 and elementals is on there, but I haven't actually done the legwork yet. Okay. Yeah. I mean, look, this preview season hit us fast and I understand that you haven't had time to unpack it all. Neither have I. I don't know what kind of elemental support is out there. Uh, There is the rare, the red rare that I saw people talking about in conjunction with the Blightning Ball, which I thought was pretty funny. Thunderkin Awakener. If you haven't seen that, that's one colorless red haste. Whenever Thunderkin Awakener attacks, choose target elemental creature card in your graveyard with toughness less than Thunderkin Awakener's toughness. Return that card to the battlefield, tap and attacking, sacrifice at the beginning of the next end step. And Thunderkin Awakener is a 1-2, so it will be able to return Risen Reef, and you'll be drawing all kinds of cards there. I'm sure you'll be very excited about that, Jerry. But yeah, I, I don't know what this tribe can do yet. I don't really have a sense of their identity either. It just seems like weird, basically. That's all That's all I've got going for Elementals. So maybe as time goes on, I'll be into Risen Reef. Look at Risen Reef and Omnath. Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are the two cards where I'm just like, all right, this tribe, at least to me, this is how I want to build it, is just 
playing value creatures, drawing cards, developing your mana, and basically being rally the ancestors of the tribe. Yeah, just a bunch of comes into play abilities and snowballing value. Obviously, that looks nice against the Teferi problem. You know, you don't mind as much having your creatures return to your hand when they have some value attached to them. So we'll have to see if this all pans out. If it does, it sounds like it will also be exactly my type of deck, but I just don't know if it's good enough yet. And Omnath, FTKs, Planeswalkers, so... Yeah, yeah, nice pickup there. Big game. Love the Elementals. All right, so are we ready for my number seven now? I, I think so. We, we talked about this card already. It's Blood for Bones, and uh, this is the reanimation spell where you sacrifice creatures, additional cost, and you get to return a creature from your graveyard as well as a creature from your graveyard to your hand. Again, I just wrote my Tashar article, and this was a sweet fit in that deck where you're putting Tashar into play and returning your chamber sentry to your hand, and you could just combo off right away. That's cool. There's a cleaner combo now, and I, I don't know where else I'm going to talk about this card because it didn't make my top 10, but I may as well speak about it now. I'm talking about Salvager of Ruin. Salvager of Ruins, three colorless artifact creature, 2-1. Sacrifice Salvager of Ruin, choose target permanent card in your graveyard that was put there from the battlefield this turn, return it to your hand. So now you have a super clean loop, which is just Tashar, Chamber Sentry, Salvager of Ruin, Sacrifice Salvager of Ruin, get back your Chamber Sentry, and then that's infinite historic triggers. With Diligent Excavator, you mill your opponent on the spot with either of the Blood Artist effects that exist in Standard, either Cruel, Celebrant, or the new one, Corpse Knight. You kill your opponent on the spot. So Tashar getting a lot of pickups, able to now be a two-color deck if it wants to. But I, I liked using Blood for Bones in that deck quite a bit. It made the combo very, very easy to assemble. And there's also just these good reanimation targets that I think people are going to be looking at. Staple on a little bit of value. Stitcher's Supplier loves playing with this card as it fuels your graveyard. Oh, yeah. In, in general, I'm into four mana reanimation spells. There's usually ways to make it work. It comes at a time when Leyline of the Void and Grafdigger's Cage are starting to get some flex. So you have to wonder if those are going to be part of standard. Uh, that'll always be part of the question. But as far as just raw power goes, I think Blood for Bones is one of the better reanimation spells we've seen in a long time. It's really awkward because cards like Leyline of the Void and Grafdigger's Cage are probably going to see more play than they otherwise than they should. Deserve. Yeah, I, th I think just because they have historical precedent. Well, there, there's also things like the Command the Dreadhorde deck where people are like, oh, they command the Dreadhorde for 15 and I lost. So I'm going to board in Leyline and your opponent right. is just always ready for that. They're going to sidestep it. And people are continually going to walk into the same trap where they just overvalue graveyard hate in the postboard games, even though it would be much stronger in game one. But again, like your Blood for Bones deck can do the same thing, right? You can be a Stitcher supplier of Blood for Bones deck and then sideboard away from that stuff in the face of graveyard hate. So... Yep. I don't think it's necessarily that big of a deal, but obviously the deck that is relying on Planeswalkers is going to be able to sidestep it a little bit more than the deck that's relying on Stitcher's Supplier. Sure. But we'll see. Yeah, I'm looking forward to making this card work. I think just in terms of uh, the weirdo synergies that exist right now, this one has the payoffs. Yep. All right, my number six. Soren, Imperious Bloodlord, 2B for starting loyalty. Plus one target creature you control gains death touch and lifelink until end of turn. If it's a vampire, put a plus one plus one counter on it. Plus one, you may sacrifice a vampire. When you do, this deals three damage to any target. You gain three life. And minus three, you may put a vampire creature card from your hand onto the battlefield. This is very similar to Icon of Ancestry, but 
It's it's all vampires. It is a vampire build around that is basically all you can do with this card, but it is very good at making me want to build vampires. I am almost uncomfortably high on Soren, Imperious Bloodlord. I think that the fact that the ultimate is online immediately, like you just have to play Soren minus now you have threat plus Soren already on the battlefield is a play pattern we don't have a ton of experience with. And I have it's a feeling tree it's better. Yeah, I think it's better than we think it is. Like, I, I think it's actually pretty crazy to get that immediate mana payoff. And then just the other abilities, they fit, they do a lot, and they have a good overlap with everything else going on and what Vampires is historically about. And I think Vampires has been so close for so long. The tribal synergies are so good. You mentioned Icon of Ancestry, another card that tribe's going to get to pick up. It would not surprise me at all if Vampires is just a tier one deck, mainly based on Soren's addition to the format. I'm in on this card. I think it's fantastic. It's super narrow. You're right. But... That's kind of, well, it's what I thought the new model for Planeswalkers was prior to War of the Spark, and then that kind of blew that out the window. But as far as a narrow Planeswalker goes, this may be the best version of it we've ever seen. Yeah, I agree completely. It does a lot of things that the deck wants to be doing. The minus three is super powerful, and you have things like Vona against Mono Red or just Champion of Dusk in general, I think is incredible. Vampires is Probably the deck that I'm most excited about because of Soren, Icon of Ancestry, and a bunch of the aggressive vampires in the set, and obviously like all the old vampire stuff that we have too. Uh, so I could have seen this card being my number one, but the fact that it's just pigeonholed into one tribe made it fall a little bit on my list, but I do think it's one of the most powerful cards in the set. I think that's a fair way to look at it. Uh, also, just like... Man, how does a mono-red deck beat like turn two, Adanto Vanguard, turn three, Soren? You plus... Soren on the Adanto Vanguard, you gain four life. Now the Adanto Vanguard is a four or two when it's attacking. And Soren is sitting on the battlefield at five loyalty. Like that is so difficult for it. Any kind of countering aggressive deck to be able to interact with. I think that's another thing that maybe Soren is being undervalued for is just how high that starting loyalty is right now for a three mana planeswalker. This card's just amazing. And yeah, Vampire's tier one right off the bat. I believe it. Me too. So that brings us to my number six card we have talked about already, Drawn from Dreams, a little bit higher than you are. One of the things that was interesting as the most recent standard format wore on was the devaluation of Chemister's Insight because you didn't care about it being instant speed and it was just kind of mopey. Drawing two didn't really matter all that much. I could happily replace Chemister's Insight with Drawn from Dreams in a lot of my control decks. It's finding the cards you need. If you forget what it's like to look at the top seven of your library and take two of them, it's a big deal. It also dodges Narset, which I like a tremendous amount. When playing it with Teferi, you do get to play it at instant speed. So I, I think this is probably, again, better than I thought it was at first blush because I looked at it and I was like, oh, sorcery speed card draw. That's not really what we're usually in the market for. But I think given the context of the format post Teferi Time Raveler, this card is actually just better than it usually would be. And I'm high on it. Number six on my list is Drawn from Dreams. So do you think, assuming that the existing Esper Hero or Esper Control decks continue to exist in in the same form, do you think that this card just immediately slots in there? Like how many do you envision playing? I think you start in the more controlling builds. I think you start with two copies right away. I, I do think it's good enough to just see immediate inclusion because I struggled with that a little bit. You didn't want to play Chemistry's Insight, but you'd reach these late stages where you just wanted a little bit more gas, a little 
a little closing power essentially. And it was always just nickel and diming with these Esper Super Friends decks. I, I think though, Drawn from Dreams is exactly what those decks were looking for in the slot. As far as Hero, it really depends what Hero looks like at a given moment. We know that's the most adaptable deck around. So if it's slanting more towards a controlling approach, yes, you'd probably lean into some of these copies. If you're a harder beatdown plans, more focused on Hero, you know, having ample multicolor cards, because there's only so many non-multicolor cards you really want to be playing. And those decks are already looking at Narset. So it, it really just depends what Hero looks like in a given moment. Okay, my number five is cheating. Uh, I have the uncommon spell color hosers okay i i cheated on my uncommon color spell hosers whatever we're calling them as well so i'll allow this for you you can you can go ahead and talk about them okay i appreciate it uh in white we have devout decree one dub sorcery exile target creature or planeswalker that's black or red scry one which is mostly celestial purge for intents and purposes in standard at least as far mm-hmm. as i can tell Aethergust, 1U, instant, choose target, spell, or permanent, that's red or green. Its owner puts it on the top or bottom of their library. So this is another one of those cards that can deal with Rekindling Phoenix. Murders Uh, Rekindling Phoenix. Yeah. Noxious Grasp, 1B, instant, destroy target creature or planeswalker that's green or white. You gain one life. Kind of medium, kind of low on my list, but uh, two mana being able to murder a planeswalker, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Fry, 1R, instant, spell can't be countered, deals 5 damage to target creature or planeswalker that's white or blue. This is, It kills Lyra, kills Big Teferi after it ticks up. Huge, can't, huge card. Can't be countered. Yeah, uh, people were playing like Lava Coil, Fight with Fire, stuff like this. This handles a lot of the same problems. And then we have Veil of Summer, G, instant, draw a card if an opponent has cast a blue or black spell this turn. Spells you control can't be countered this turn. You and permanents you control gain hexproof from blue and from black until end of turn. So a, a very punishing response to a thought erasure. Yeah, a wild one, actually. And th- this was the one that I really had to stop and think about and unpack a little bit. And typically this kind of your spells can't be countered effect is pretty lame, not something you're really interested in. But the more I thought about Veil of Summer, I actually think this is just like incredibly impactful for these green decks like you said countering thought erasure matters a lot but also just beating every single removal spell as well like this is a lot of value tacked on to this type of effect and you're drawing a card like yeah this is kind of jaw dropping actually this is this is uh blossoming defense plus draw card it's cheaper than all the other color hosers i feel like this is probably the best one I think you're right. And that wasn't my first instinct. I was just like, oh, this card must suck. And then I stopped and waited and read it a little bit more. And it's funny to say that when it's competing with Fry, because I think Fry is actually just awesome. But Veil might prove to be the best one. Yeah. So all of these cards are very impactful, are going to see a lot of sideboard play, obviously, just really depends on where the metagame is going and what type of deck that you actually want to utilize these in and everything. But they're going to see play across the board. Right there with you. And, and I'll just spoil it now. This is my number four list of cards. So we're, we're just a little bit off on our evaluations. The difference between five and four is probably so small as to be meaningless. We both really like this set of cards. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that's going to bring us to my number five. And this is a fun one. Not a card I expected to see in course at 2020. It, it's Marauding Raptor. Marauding Raptor is one colorless, one red creature dinosaur. Creature spells, that's something I missed at first. All creature spells you cast cost one less to cast. Whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, Marauding Raptor deals two damage to it. 
If a dinosaur is dealt damage this way, Marauding Raptor gets plus two, plus zero until end of turn, and Marauding Raptor is a two, three. And is this just the card that Dinosaurs was missing the entire time? Like all the work we did on this archetype, it was just like, oh, this is what it needed. Every single damage-based ability gets hit by this. And even, I I can't even remember the dinosaur because it's been so long now, but the 2-3 dinosaur that finds a land when it comes into play. Ranging Raptor. Like even that card benefits from this. And that was a card that we had as part of our dinosaur decks early on, but we couldn't quite make it work. And then of course we get into Ripjaw Raptor where you now have a three mana Ripjaw Raptor drawing a card immediately and your Marauding Raptor is attacking for four. All of your Galta setups with this card are super easy. Obviously, there's a deck building cost. You have to have three toughness on pretty much every creature you play once you can set to Marauding Raptor, I think. But I think that's fine. And I think these decks work. And dinosaurs might finally get a chance with the addition of Marauding Raptor. Yeah, I don't know. I'm skeptical. I mean, you can still play this in a big-ish red setup alongside Rekindling Phoenix and Skargan Hellkite and stuff like that. But obviously, it really limits your options. So it has to go in dinosaurs are some sort of bigger red deck so i'm not that excited about this i i still think that the archetype might be missing a decent amount of stuff and the fact that i don't know you have this and you have the dinosaurs like it still does limit your deck building like you still want to play lantern elves and then it's just like a dead draw after that or incubation druid stuff like that so i don't know there's definitely costs, and we'll have to see if those costs are worth it. I, I do think it's super impactful that this doesn't only reduce the cost on dinosaurs, and most of what you'd want to do alongside this is going to survive it. I will say scaling in multiples is a problem, unless you're going real yeah. big. Uh, yep, so, that's so that's a little bit of a pause for me. But I, I just think the aggression and the just synergies this card carries with all those other dinosaurs might be enough to get the tribe actually to get some shine if nothing else i'm going to try it i'll tell you that like it has me interested i want to put time into it that persistent reduction effect things like that have a way of breaking from time to time now i'm not saying marauding raptor is broken that's not my insistence it's just when you're reducing all the costs of a certain spell type sometimes you find something that you didn't quite expect that kind of tears this card in half so i'll be watching for that as well and a persistent trigger tied onto that too often interacts in very odd ways. So we'll have to keep an eye out if there's any kind of combo-ish stuff we can get up to Marauding Raptor. Well, Polyraptor is the one that people have been talking about. It just draws that's, the that's game. That's a and dumb it's one, though. Yeah, that, that accomplishes is. actual nothing. Uh, I, I don't even understand actually why people are talking about it. Like, that's not your goal in a game of magic. I think people just want to troll on Arena, basically, and see what happens. But that'll get old real fast. And Yeah, a lot, a lot of trolls in the world, man. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's true. Uh, my number four is mm-hmm. Cerulean Drake. I have this one very high. Very uh, high. Part of, this, part of this is a response to the fact that Mono Red was kind of like the scourge of the last season or two. And this is a very easy, very good place to turn. And then there's even stuff like there are some base red gruel decks that it's very strong against. This is going to be like a four of or a zero of in a lot of sideboards, but it potentially makes things very, very easy, which is nice. Yeah, that was kind of my question with this card, and I'm curious to get your opinion. If you're just like Esper Control, again, assuming that deck exists and is going to be part of the metagame going forward, do you play four in your sideboard? Like, is this your best approach to counter mono red? 
Uh, you still need ways to answer experimental frenzy. Mm-hmm. Of course. But but barring that, yeah, this is your best card. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. That's what I wasn't quite sure on. You could do a bunch of weird stuff where it's like, oh, you play some Cry of the Carnariums. That's good against like their small ball draws, but not good against their big draws. And then you play like some Lyras, some D-Sparks. Now I think you you only have to beat Experimental Frenzy because this helps beat like a lot of their small ball draws. And then you actually just have time to set up and play your bigger stuff without worrying about them getting under you. Nice. So Drake, spot removal, kill Experimental Frenzy, GG. Yeah, pretty much. Cool. So your four was the color hosers. So we're back to my three. Yep, we're on three. And this is young adult Chandra, not the novice pyromancer. This is the this is the acolyte of flame. One R R. Chandra's on your four list. starting loyalty. Yeah, I mean it's Chandra set man, you gotta. Sure. All right, four starting loyalty zero. Put a loyalty counter on each red planeswalker you control. Zero, put two one one red elemental creature tokens, or create two one one red elemental creature tokens. They gain haste. Sacrifice them at the beginning of the next end step. And minus two, you may cast target instant or sorcery with CMC three or less from your graveyard. If that card will be put in your graveyard this turn exile instead. Why so high on Chandra? I think I think I know a lot of the reasons. I think it has to do with planeswalkers in large part, but give us your breakdown. Yeah, it's basically Planeswalkers. Uh, when you're facing down Narset and uh, Teferi Time Reveler, I think this is a very solid, reasonable card. It dodges a lot of the things that Legion Warboss otherwise does not, which is kind of what makes me very excited to try it. And then mm-hmm. it the, the minus two is interesting because you can't do it the same turn because you actually have to cast the spell, right? So you can't you know play this on three and like flashback a shock or whatever. But it means that it's potentially modal, depending on what sort of red deck you're playing, which is very cool. You can use to flashback things like Fry, which is a pretty incredible minus two on a three mana Planeswalker. Yeah, I think that the question is like how much value you can get out of that minus two, and that'll really determine how good Chandra is. The damage output seems like it's there, right? As far as just a red card goes, like persistent damage output over a bunch of turns, this is going to do quite a bit. And it does it in multiple forms. You're buying back Lightning Strike. You're buying back the removal that would otherwise stymie your offense. I do buy this card. It didn't make my list. And I think I didn't know exactly what I could do with it besides just jam it in aggressive mono red. Do you think this actually has a home in the bigger red strategies in any kind of multicolor red deck? Is there something to do with the put a loyalty on each red Planeswalker you control clause of Chandra? Well, you have a bunch of different Chandras that you can play it with. There's Sarkin, even just in red. But mm-hmm. when you, yeah, branch out to other red, you know, red splash, black or whatever, you get like Angrath and stuff like that. So, yeah, you can maybe build a Planeswalker-ish red deck. I think that would be reasonable. It's not really what I'm trying to do. I just think that this compared to Legion Warboss is favorable in a lot of spots. and post-board against Esper, you really do want to diversify your threats, right? You don't want everything right. to lose to a uh, Cry the Carnarium or Basilica Bell Haunt or whatever. So having like this, Tybalt, Frenzy, uh, Chandra Fire Artisan, maybe Six Mana Chandra, maybe Treasure Map, like you have a lot of options for actually juking them, which is nice. Deck we haven't seen in quite some time now, J- 
Jeskai Super Friends. Any interest in Chandra there? I could see it buying back Deafening Clarion. It gets back your spot removal. It pumps your Sahilis and Sarkins. And it's just another three mana Planeswalker. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I mean, Interplanar Beacon allows you to do some stupid stuff. And you have uh, Temple of Epiphany if you wanted to go right. more like base blue-red and just very lightly splash the white for the Teferis and Clarions and stuff. So there's also just like the, the minus two hits things that are any color, right? So if you're like some elemental deck and you want to play charter course or whatever, you also have the option of doing that. So Hmm. very cool. I actually think this is the first time we've mentioned the temples thus far in our discussion. Excited to see the temples back in standard. Yeah, I might have skipped over them in my reprint thing because I had them all by each other. I just put temples and I want mm. to get through like each individual card. So yeah, I skipped that. Obviously, those are huge. That's yeah, that's a big deal. It is weird for us to only get the enemy ones, which makes me think that the allied ones are coming in the next big set, which makes me think that big set is Theros alongside a bunch of like enchantment seeds and stuff like that. But Yes, I am. I'm very excited for these. Temple Shockland mana base is very, very nice. I'm very happy. Yeah, I enjoyed temples quite a bit last time they were present in standard. It's a little weird in that our mana bases are a little parasitic right now, where like the check lands rely on the shock lands and reducing numbers can be problematic. So I think the biggest pickup right now is just in the two color decks. Again, I'm kind of referring to the same deck over and over, but it's just because I haven't had a lot of time with the Corset 2020 spoiler yet. So I haven't built that many decks actually. But when building my Tashar decks, which were black white, having just like 12 black white lands was a really big deal. And also that deck benefited quite a bit from getting that scry. So I, I think that's the immediate gainer is two color decks right now that have a little bit slower pace to them. We'll be really happy to see the temples, but as time goes on, they'll certainly find play in all kinds of decks. Yeah, and Vampires has unclaimed territory too, so you have effectively 16 duels if you want them. Wild, yeah, that's quite a pickup. All right, so I think we are on my number three now, and here's where things get dicey for me, Jerry. I'm concerned I have flubbed this top three, but I'm going to go with it. I, I trusted my instinct, and maybe I'll look very silly as time goes on, but my number three card is Vivian Arcbow Ranger, Colorless, green, 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 legendary planeswalker Vivian, plus one, distribute two plus one plus one counters among up to two target creatures. They gain trample until end of turn. Minus three, target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to target creature or planeswalker. Not a, not a fight clause either, just straight up damage. Finally, minus five, you may choose a creature card you own from outside the game, reveal it, and put it into your hand. So I, I see Vivian being right at home in these gruel decks, these very aggressive decks. It's doing that classic green planeswalker thing of simultaneously advancing your clock and giving really meaningful options. The fact that you now have a removal spell you can play that's also doing damage is worth a lot. And that clause to be able to go into your sideboard at a time when some really meaningful hosers are coming back. I'd also point out this doesn't require you to grab a green card. Obviously, any deck playing Vivian Arcbow Ranger almost certainly very heavy green requirements, but there may be secondary colors uh, and you may have access to you know some red creatures, some blue creatures, who knows. But I think this card is doing just enough that I'm into it. And I don't want to sleep on the Trample Claws either because 
chump blocking is always a problem for these large green decks. Not going to happen anymore when Vivian's in the mix. I like Vivian a decent amount, especially for the minus three. The minus five, what is? what can you even do with this? Like, what is the most meaningful thing? I, I think it's more toolboxy than like just slam the door. I mean, building Vivian sideboards could be really interesting because I think you're going to want to account for a broad array of situations. And one of those situations is just like damage. So are there spots where you want to have a Galta in your sideboard, maybe where you've already generated battlefield presence and you can just cash in Vivian for a, a huge body. Uh, are there spots where you're going to want to look at a flash creature so you can threaten after a wrath? Haste creatures are important. Uh, obviously, Ceratops with protection from blue might come up a bunch. So I, I don't know exactly what you're supposed to do with Vivian's minus five, but I think there are a good amount of options. There's also Reclamation Sage right now. So like those kind of comes into play abilities. You could probably find ramp creatures in some situations. But it's got the classic problem where if you go too deep on your wish board, you're giving up actual meaningful cards. So that's something right. Vivian users are going to have to really work to keep in check. Minus five is just a lot, too. It's a lot. I mean, second turn, you plus once, and then you get to trade your Vivian for a new card. Not exactly what you're looking to do there. So we'll see. We'll see how impactful that minus five is. I, I think I'm mostly sold on the plus one, minus three. Minus five is going to come up much more infrequently. But I do think plus one, minus three are really good here. Yeah. And four mana Planeswalker, very solid for a four mana Planeswalker. Kind of awkward that she's a little on the weak side, I think, for a triple green card. Uh, you would expect it to be like a little bit more powerful, but it is definitely interesting. And the counters stay, which is nice. We'll have to see if mono green gets another look with this card, too. It's a deck that rarely pops up these days but each new hard green print makes me take another look at it see if there's anything there look vivian would definitely be on my top 20 okay that's pretty far from number three <laughs> but uh i get it that's okay my next card isn't even going to be on your top 20 so okay uh my number two is shifting ceratops which we talked a lot about i think that this this card probably does more in the set to actually shift the format uh, at least for how it stands now, you can make the case for just having the color hosers overall. But as far as, you know, there being 30% Esper control at the last Mythic Championship, I mean, this this card is a thing that's going to change stuff. Yeah, right there with you, obviously. It's a good point given the present metagame. I think we got ourselves into some trouble come War of the Spark by relying on the present metagame. But I, I don't expect M20 to be quite as dramatic of a shift, although we are talking about like vampires being tier one and Tashar combo existing. So, so maybe it's more impactful than we actually believe. It's entirely possible. Uh, I mean, there's also things like the Cavaliers that can be built around. There's elementals. But like as far as like fundamentally what the format is about, I don't think that you can really get away from like, you know, mono red. Yeah, mono white or vampires, they're they're going to be pretty similar, I think. And then, yeah, the three mana planeswalkers just being so strong. Command the Dreadhorde being so strong. Like, right. I find it hard to believe that M20 is going to shift those decks out. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, we, we certainly flubbed it on the last one. Yeah, well, uh, things have changed dramatically as far as how cards are being placed into standard. And I think we're still wrapping our heads around it. So we'll have to see if this is just a, a set that kind of flies under the radar or one that really shakes things up. Hard to tell right now. Oh, yeah. All right, Jerry. 
it's time for my number two card. And this is the one where <laughs> I, I thought about taking it off my list just because I know the amount of disbelief and ridicule I'm about to get, but that's not being true to who I am, Jerry. I believe in this card and I have reasons that I'm going to tell you about. Nobody else on the planet thinks this card is any good, but my number two card is Cavalier of Thorns. Two colorless, green, green, green. Reach, when Cavalier of Thorns enters the battlefield, reveal the top five cards of your library. Put a land card from among them onto the battlefield and the rest into your graveyard. Very important clause there. Yep. When Cavalier of Thorns dies, you may exile it. If you do, put another target card from your graveyard on top of your library. I'm going to try and give a very brief pitch on why I believe in this card. I, I have first, I have, a, I have a pitch. Can I go first? Sure. Command the Dreadhorde. That's that's the obvious part, but it's a little bit broader than that. Okay, so like my read on mid-range green in this format is that it relies on these extremely mana-intensive threats that do an excellent job of scaling throughout the game. The three in particular I'm thinking of right now are Hydroid Crisis, Command the Dreadhorde, Mass Manipulation. When you reach an endgame state with these decks, and the endgame state is just about mana, which, by the way, Cavalier of Thorns provides you. You're getting a land when you cast Cavalier of Thorns. When you reach the endgame state with these decks, you only want to do one thing, really. And you want to you would do that thing happily over and over and over until the cows came home. Cavalier of Thorns plays into both sides of that. And there's just the fact that it's fueling your graveyard, giving you some selection, getting you access to these cards in a world where Tamiyo is one of the best cards, where Command the Dreadhorde is one of the best cards, where having cards in your graveyard is actually super, super meaningful. And now you're getting buybacks of those same cards. So look, a lot of times a deck can beat the first mass manipulation, but beating the second one is real hard. And if Cavalier of Thorns is answered and killed then you're going to get to go into your graveyard, find your best card, put it on top of your library, cast it again on the next turn. Now, granted, you could say, well, why not just leave Cavalier of Thorns alive? The body's big enough that it matters. And on defense, this blocks virtually everything in the entire format. I went through the 10 most played removal spells in the format. Two of them kill Cavalier of Thorns outright, and then you get your trigger. Six of them just miss. They're not doing anything against Cavalier of Thorns. Two of them bounce Cavalier of Thorns. Those are the two Teferis, which I'm counting as removal spells. You can argue with that if you want. But I think, I think that you reach a point in the late game where you're kind of happy to have your Cavalier of Thorns bounced. And I know that sounds weird because it is kind of a small value add. You're just getting one land. But as you're casting multiple Cavalier of Thorns and your mana is developing and developing and developing, you just reach a point where you don't care anymore. Five mana isn't even a cost. And in combination with things like Nyssa, you you have all the mana in the world at some point. It's just about moving through your deck, generating threats, and finding these key cards. Cavalier of Thorns does all of that. I'm done with my pitch. You can tell me why I'm wrong, and this isn't even a top 20 card now. For Command the Dreadhorde applications, I like this card a lot. I, I, I agree with you that it probably slots into the Simic decks too, or Bant decks, and I think my opinion is probably colored because I don't have a lot of experience with those decks. I was always way happier just tuning Esper to beat those decks and stuff like that. Okay. So I could see why this card would not immediately jump out at me. But yeah, you're, you're making a good case. And especially at it's uh, you messaged me the other day and was just like, oh, yeah, this card at 
$4 pre-order is not right for a Mythic. That seems insane to me. This is, this is not a $4 card. This gets played in multiples. Like It's a, potentially a four of and one of the best decks that presently exists. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, so it is currently at $4.99. I'm adding four to my card. Good investment. You may have sold. I like where your head's at. Okay. Yeah, I, I just think like I, maybe I was a little dramatic because I haven't seen anyone talk about this card. And in fact, like when I suggested this was a very good card, people were just like, what? Like dumbfounded. So it's not only that people aren't into this card, it's that they haven't even considered it as an option. And maybe it's not the second best card in the set, but it's way better than people think it is. And I do think this is important going forward. And this is one of those things where like, it's kind of reliant on existing decks to continue to exist. But the power level of those decks is such that they're just, they're the decks designed to go over the top of everything. So as long as you ever want to go over the top of everything, which Teferi kind of incentivizes, and like we said, we don't anticipate Teferi going anywhere. I think those decks hold, I think they remain important. And I think Cavalier of Thorns is a big part of that. I don't know. Cavalier is even an elemental. It ramps you, which is nice with Omnath. I mean, maybe maybe I'm supposed to be playing these in elementals too. It's possible. You're going to have to take a look at that. I'm, I'm happy I've made at least a somewhat convincing argument. I got you to put them in your cart. That's all I care about. If I saved you a few bucks in the future, then I've made an effective pitch. Should I buy Omnaths for eight? I think I'm going to. You better have spent all of your money on Cavalier of Thorns before you're buying Omnaths. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Well, I just want them to have them because I know that I'm going to play with them. Right. I would say, like, you can start with Arena Omnaths. Like, make sure it works first. You, this isn't a card you have to have in your collection immediately, I think. But this Brian, is one what if they go explore. up? What if I miss then out? You, the then you'll still the buy is, them. The FOMO is real. I'm I'm sure. I understand, Jerry. I've I've been buying a lot of magic cards lately, particularly foil ones. And as I buy more and more... I have felt that creeping into my processes like, oh, but what if this card goes up too? I better get 20 of those. And at some point, you just have to check yourself and get the cards you really believe in, the cards you really care about. Cavalier of Thorns is one. Last week, I ordered like 50 Aria Flame for 60 cents. That worked out pretty well. That was another one I jammed really hard. Crashing Footfall is another card I'm buying a lot of. But focus on the ones you you truly see in your heart. And if that's Omnath for you, go for it. Buy, it, buy yourself a card full. You're welcome on those Aria Flames, by the way. Yeah, that was a nice, nice little pickup there. Can you believe there are still people out there who don't like Aria Flame? It's weird because they're coming from a place like they're saying they've played with and against it and just aren't impressed by it. But that has not been my experience at all. And I've played on both sides of it and it has seemed virtually unbeatable. It seems like it dodges all the problems that your deck previously had. I think it's good in multiple archetypes. I think it's good in both Phoenix and Storm. Uh, and I'm still curious to see if Storm could actually have a resurgence based on Aria Flame. So I, I don't know. I can't buy people passing on that card right now. Yeah, I find it hard to believe that you've ever played with it if you're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pass. I don't know. We'll see as time goes on. It literally killed like all of my opponents. It won like 70% of my games. Look, the, I, the, the, I believe you. I, I've played with it now. I, at first, I was a hater on Aria Flame. It took exactly until I played with it. And I was like, okay, this works. What's my foil one at? You still want that? Uh, well, maybe not anymore. I should have gotten it from you last week where it was oh my just like God. a couple bucks. Like 35 bucks, right? Well, according to Goldfish, it's 55. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> Dude, I almost just gave it to you. <laughs> I know you did. That would have been very foolish of you. <laughs> oh, man. Wild. All right, we should probably get back to M20. We're approaching the... 
yeah. the close of this top 10 list. And we're going to get to hear your number one card card in Corset well, 2020. What do you got for us? It, it's easy because it's Icon of Ancestry. I think this card is going to see a lot of play all over the place, mostly in Vampires. I think that's pretty easy, but I think that there are probably some other tribes, like, you know, people are playing Warriors or whatever. It's like, it seems fine sure. in there, right? So, Merfolk have been around. People love yeah. Merfolk. Yeah, sure. So uh, there are a lot of slot, a lot of spots for this card to slot in. I like that it is not just a three mana anthem because that is mostly replaceable for these tribal decks. It's three mana anthem plus an engine. It gives you a mana sink for your beatdown deck. What else do you want? Yeah, pretty wild for a beatdown deck to have access to this. And you know, like I said, my number ten card. Don't take that the wrong way. Super high on icon of ancestry especially when it comes to vampires. And as long as we're talking about vampires, I may as well reveal my number one card. It was, in fact, Soren, Imperious Bloodlord. You're right. It's incredibly narrow. It only fits into one archetype. But man, does it juice that archetype so dramatically. And that, along with Icon of Ancestry, has me a complete believer in week one vampire strategies it's almost certainly what I would be looking into just because it also has the benefit of being the aggressive deck too. But now it's the aggressive deck that grinds really well and has maybe some elements of inevitability tacked onto it as well. So yeah, Soren all the way, my number one card, closely followed by Cavalier of Thorns trailing just behind. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I am mostly a believer in Cavalier of Thorns. Uh, my order has been placed. Beautiful. Got there. You did it, man. You convinced me. I don't know if I would. Well, I, I should probably put it on my top 10 somewhere. I would maybe lump uh, Cerulean Drake and Shifting Ceratops together as like the same sort of like hate creature color hoser cycle. Or yeah, maybe just put all, all color hosers together. I don't know. But yeah, I, that'll, that'll probably be like the legacy of course at 2020 is returning real color hosing back to magic for the first time in a while, I think. And it'll be interesting to see the effect that has anything else you want to say about course at 2020, anything excite you for modern. I had a couple cards that I wanted to talk about as far as modern goes. Yeah. Modern. I wasn't really looking at too much. Uh, I, I know that the dub dub, like double get my fetch lands back thing is potentially there, but it's not, it's not busted. You know, it's just like a card that maybe does stuff requires a lot of setup, whatever. Yeah, so the dub dub thing get two fetch lands. That's that's not what excites me about that card. I think just in blue white, it actually adds a whole bunch of really good options in combination with the ability to just be like rampant growth at instant speed. Which you and I have played these decks. You a huge part of my salvo last week against blue white in my article was just like this deck can't ever cheat on mana. If it ever misses, you're just boned and the entire format is cheating on mana and you're just sitting there trying to play fair. This at least gives you the option to, and it's doing it at the same time where you can protect your planeswalkers. Sometimes you'll just do the busted ramp thing and get two lands. I don't think it'll happen all that often, but blue white can shift its mana base to now play more copies of prismatic Vista. So you're getting more effective fetch lands. I do see a couple copies making their way into blue white control of this card. Yeah, that's fair. I don't think you can play a bunch because there are awkward no. setups and y you need to be spending your mana early to deal with the things that your opponent's doing. Uh, and you also need to draw, you know, multiple fetch lands and blah, blah, blah. Right. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of stuff going on, but I do think that if you draw a copy of this card, you can find ways in the mid game to utilize it to your benefit, which is kind of nice. Get up to those snapcaster shenanigans. That's my plan. Yeah. And then the other one is the pizza maker oven, right? 
Yeah, Pizza Forge, four colorless. You may look at the top card of your library at any time. You may cast the top card of your library if it's an artifact or a colorless non-land card. Tap, pay one life, exile the top card of your library. Probably beyond broken in vintage, I have to assume. Maybe in legacy as well, definitely deserves a look. But they keep coming back to this effect and it's, it's a powerful one. We know that for sure at this point. Yeah, and... Again, that, that's the type of card that exactly I was not looking at for standard, uh, but for legacy, vintage, that card's going to mess some stuff up. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. think so. And it's like just a good word target for a lot of the prison decks too, right? Oh, yeah. Good good little pickup there. That's true. Nice little engine. Someone played Bottle of Cloister. This seems a good bit stronger. I agree. Urza making a comeback, making some pizzas, doing it all. Waiting for Hogak to be thrown into the pizza oven and leave the format for good. All right. So wrapping up the podcast with a question from the wonderful folks in our discord every week, we ask uh, them to ask some of their burning questions. We pick the one that we like the most. Maybe it's related to the podcast. Maybe it's not. And then we uh, send them some OG game podcast sleeves, which will soon become arena deckless pins. And I have a question that I really like. Hit us. Let's let's do it. And it comes from a person I really like, Liam Callahan. Kahalen. Kahalen. I did it again. Yes. Yeah, it. Liam has talked sorry, to us Liam. about this. I know. Kahalen. I, I wasn't ready. Uh, okay, so Liam asks. How do you feel about play design's recent philosophy to bump up the power ceiling on commons? What's your favorite common in M20? Well, since you picked this, you must have one in mind. I don't know that I have a common picked out yet. So so give us yours right now. The, the common I actually like a lot is sort of boring because it's one of the ones that Andrew Brown talked about when he also talked about like this change in philosophy. And mm-hmm. it's Cloud Seer. This is 2U21 Elemental Wizard Flying ETB Draw Card. And... Yeah. The reason I like this card and why I like this philosophy so much is that limited for the most part is fairly boring and you can make the claim that limited games are different. So they have a lot more replayability, but I don't think that that's the case with a lot of limited formats and specifically the core sets. And I think that one thing that wizards could and probably should do in order to try to make limited more interesting and more appealing to the masses is to just shift it to be a little more similar to cube where there there are these exciting cards at lower rarities and i'm looking at mythic spoiler and the card right next to cloud Seer is daybreak chaplain one dub one three lifelink and it's like come on why? Mm. Why is that? A, why is that a thing? Why is that a card that you're going to try and make us play with in limited? You can make these cards exciting and also not hit constructed. You know, like people people like cube because of all of the things that are good about limited, but also because the games are dynamic, the cards are fun, et cetera, et cetera. Right? But you don't really get that when you're just drafting grizzly bears and like fighting them against each other. So. The multicolored sets, I think, do a very good job of this, and I, I would like to see more cards like Cloud Can Seer, more things that are like pretty decent on rate and that you're just excited to put in your deck and play with. Yeah, I guess I would point to Winged Words from this set, kind of along the same lines. Like We lived with Divination yeah. for a long time, and Winged Words is just like enough upside where if I draft properly and get the payoffs and get multiple Winged Words 
maybe my deck's just going to go off and be awesome. I'm going to leave the game with this great story about how I just kind of like played a one mana flyer and then every single turn of the game was doing something tempo-y and getting more and more cards. And, you know, we've got Unsummon at common as well. So all this stuff just mushing together to make this really sweet tempo deck uh, sounds really good to me. And you're right. It's closer to a more cube-like experience. As far as like how it overall affects limited, I think I still need time to unpack that. And I think this is the set to do it in because War of the Spark was just, it it was like nothing we've ever done before. It was very different. It was very polarizing. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. I had fun, but I understand how it was like snowbally and kind of awful. And I did maybe 40 drafts or something. And there was the occasional draft where like you just didn't end up with like a good planeswalker or a good X spell or whatever. And it just felt like you could never win. But yeah, I, and even for Obnixilis's cruelty in that set, it's like, yeah, that card's exciting, but it's not very exciting in this format. It's not really a card that you're just like, Oh, thank God I have, uh, you know, dark banishing in a format where my opponent has five planeswalkers. Like it's not right. Not very good, but Cloud can see her. You're just excited to have that in any limited format. I don't care. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, this is kind of the test run, I think, where I'll really feel if there's been a pretty dramatic shift in how these games play out. And I'm looking forward to it. I actually really enjoy core set drafting for the most part. And granted, I think basically every core set gets further and further away from what it actually means to be a core set. That's fine. I'm not complaining about that. I mean, I think core sets as a whole were a pretty uninteresting product. And I think this is a very interesting product. So that's a good change. But just getting back to some traditional magic creatures and combat tricks and removal spells, but with all of that amped up a little bit should be interesting. And, you know, if Modern Horizons is a reflection of that strategy too, even if it's not like a conscious one, it's just more about what the power level of those cards has to look like in general. Man, do I really enjoy the Modern Horizon sealed format, which is not something that's happened to me in a long time because I've been kind of down on sealed for a few years now. But I really enjoyed sealed. Uh, I thought there were always interesting decisions to make. I thought there were interesting pools. I thought there were things that were unintuitive all the time. And a lot of that is based around like the engine commons that kept coming up like uh, Arkham's Astrolabe was a huge effect in the format that really tested my deck building prowess and had me making interesting decisions all the time. So if that's what we're dealing with here and that's the effect of amped up power levels, uh, I'm here for it. And I'm excited to see what this limited format looks like. See, I really like Modern Horizons draft, even though I feel like it's a few levels below cube and a level below like modern masters, like the, at least like the first two modern masters in power mm. level. But I, I think it's like right there. I, th- I think that normal standard sets could have things like, you know, changeling outcast and uh, the six, three ninja and stuff like that, where the games are dynamic and fun. And like your one drops are playable. You get to draft these synergies. You get to draft cool cards. Right. And I don't think that that would be too out of line. But Sealed for me was not super great because there were a lot of synergy cards and you would just end up with like, you know, a good 15 card sliver deck or whatever and just not be able to like make the thing happen that you want to make happen, uh, which was kind of unfortunate. Yeah, I think you were incentivized to like make it work, whether it actually worked or not, like push your mana base in certain directions and 
that can be swingy and it can be frustrating, but it can also lead to some really incredible, great games, which I played a lot of. Uh, as far as like draft versus sealed, I'll be honest, I've drafted once. And yeah, the you, first you time I draft ever drafted, I, I drafted such a train wreck the first time that I, I wouldn't even consider it actually having drafted before. <laughs> so I, I'm sure I will return to the draft format because I love the sealed format so much that I'm looking at going to Vegas now just so I can play some more of it. And if I do do that, okay. I certainly will make sure I get in drafts before I do. Because, you know, I, I honestly had a blast. I played two MCQs at GP Seattle this past week and both went well. I lost a win in one and uh, went 4-2 in the other. So it, it felt like I was getting a handle on the sealed format very quickly. I played some on Magic Online as well, uh, but I just never travel down the road to draft. I'll make sure I get into that next time around. Dude, I, I think, I honestly think you're going to be blown away by how great draft is. Like now that you have played the format and you know, the archetypes, you know, the cards, etc. I think you're, you're going to have a lot of fun with this draft format. Cool. I'll definitely make some time for it then. All right. That's it. Uh, we did our, our one core set 2020 podcast the people who wanted to hear previews you can you can leave us alone now and we'll get back to talking about modern next week probably right people definitely weigh in on this too i think this is a a weird approach i think it was right for this go around one of the things i said to you jerry is i think that the most important thing is probably that we're talking about what we were excited about and i wasn't excited to talk about course at 2020 last week i was excited to talk about modern this week, though, this is where I wanted to be, what I wanted to be talking about. So that's kind of how I would track things in the future, make sure we're always talking about what had our interests. But at the same time, you all come first. So if you have opinions on how we did this spoiler season, make sure you let us know, and we'll definitely yeah. consider them in the future. And I, I agree with what you're saying. I feel like we could probably just mandate that every core set, we just do a top 10 and that's it. And I would maybe, be fine with maybe that. Maybe that's the key. I, yeah, maybe it's I think about that. I think that makes a lot of sense for something like Modern Horizons, where it's like bigger. I mean, I think I think we could even go further down the rabbit hole, right? Where if there is a card that we like, we could just do a deep dive on a single card or something, you know? Sure. But yeah, it is it is interesting. Uh, we we definitely want to hear feedback, and uh, I said this before, maybe just in the Discord, but I think the easiest thing would be to do two podcasts a week, at least to be able to satiate the needs of our listener base. I don't know how. Uh, likely that is going to be uh, for a thing in the future, but who knows? I will quote one of the greatest artists of our time, Gerald, and say, never say never. Who's, who's that from? Justin Bieber. Come on, man. Ah, oh, dude. Oh, man. That 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 could have been your, your nickname for this episode if we still did that. But all right, yeah, you can sign us out. That anymore. That's game. Good luck.